Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From time to time, someone has hurt me. And if that person has hurt me deeply enough, then I spend a lot of time thinking how I would like to see that person hurt. To exact my own vengeance to see them suffer, there's almost a certain pleasure in thinking such thoughts. Yet are they good thoughts? Are they holy thoughts? And do they accomplish God's purposes in this world? As we begin to move into uh, Amos's prophecy to Israel, we see today essentially that God is judge and that we are not. Last week, we began a new sermon series on the book of Amos. Amos is an Old Testament prophet. He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel, and acted essentially as God's prosecutor, going to Israel and saying, here's the law, here's how you've broken the law, and it's particularly delivered to Israel at a time in which they were enjoying a lot of economic success. It was a boom economy in the north as a result of a number of factors, but their affluence had resulted in them moving away from God and His law. It's a reminder to us that with affluence comes temptation. Not to say that affluence is wrong in and of itself, but it can easily distract us from our call to be God's people. 
Now, as we start the actual book, we considered the introduction last week, surprisingly, Amos does not begin with Israel. You and I know that most of the prophecy is going to be against the northern kingdom of Israel, but for this first part, Amos takes up a charge against the foreign nations that surround Israel. Why would he do that? Just to run down the nations for you, there are six. And Amos will address Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. None of them are God's people. None of them are Israel or Judah. And they all are located outside of those countries. If you wanted a comparison or begin to think about the oddity of this, imagine that Amos was sent to the United States. And you knew that Amos was coming to address the United States to prophesy on God's behalf. But for the first few paragraphs of his letter, he addresses Canada and Mexico and Cuba. You think, well, what's, what's the purpose in that? Why is God instructing Amos to take issue with these foreign nations around Israel before God takes issue directly with Israel? Well, we're going to try to answer that question as we launch into our passage. And really, we're just going to examine two questions today, which is number one, What is being said? And once we understand the answer to that, we'll consider why it is being said. So what is being said? You may have noticed as we read through the passage that it's a repetitive refrain. The country is changing and the sins are changing, but it's Hebrew poetry and is following the same pattern. And each refrain has four standard components. Number one, thus saith the Lord. This is God's revelation to the people. Number two, is a little Hebrew euphemism for emphasis uh, in the sense that you notice each time Amos writes, uh, for three reasons I am doing this, no for four. You'll see that scattered throughout the Old Testament in different places. And sometimes it's for six reasons, no for seven. The number doesn't really matter, nor does the number correspond necessarily to what is being said. It is simply a way to draw emphasis to what is about to be said to say, I've got three good reasons to say this. No, wait, I've got four. There's no shortage of uh, information or reason for me to make this assertion. So thus saith the Lord. Then you've got this poetic refrain to draw emphasis. Then you've got the identification of the place and the sin. And after that, you've got God's punishment toward that place for their sin. So those four elements, the word of the Lord, poetic refrain, the three, then four, the identification of the place and sin, and what's going to happen to them. So just to make sure we understand what's being said, let's consider the first refrain and look at how it works. If you look at verse three, you have, thus says the Lord, this is God's revelation. Then you have the poetic refrain for three transgressions of Damascus which is the capital city of Syria, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Okay, well, why is God angry? Why does Syria need to be punished? They have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. All right, what's a threshing sledge? A threshing sledge was something you used to harvest grain. You can imagine a, say, a two-by-eight piece of wood, and affixed to that piece of wood, that board, would be some kind of sharp object, fragmented. 
could have been flint, it could have been iron in this case is what is mentioned. And you would lay that down on grain and horses would pull it and it would separate the wheat from the chaff uh, for any grain that you were trying to harvest. Now what Gilead has apparently done is done this to humans on the battlefield. And you can imagine the damage that would be done by dragging this over either people who had been knocked down or corpses in the course of battle. For that, the prophecy goes on to mention the punishment for Syria. Uh, In verse 4, God promises to send fire upon the leadership of Syria. And in verse 5, God promises to overthrow Damascus and to send the people of Syria into exile. So you see, word of the Lord, poetic refrain, identification of sin, and punishment for that sin. Well, why is God so upset at these nations? Remember, these aren't God's people. They're not members of the covenant. And yet he takes issue with all six. For what? Well, if we were to survey all six, which we're not doing. In fact, we only read four or only printed four in your worship guide. But if we surveyed all six, they're all being held account for their barbaric violence toward one another. What is mentioned are the use of the threshing sledges of iron, other gross violence, such as ripping open the bellies of pregnant women, selling tribes wholesale into slavery, and desecrating the bones of the dead. In the last refrain, they burned the bones of the king of Edom to make lime, which was used for mortar and building. In other words, you essentially have a summary of brutality against humanity. It is today what we would call crimes against humanity. These are the sorts of acts that the UN goes knocking on a nation's door when they want to say, you've gone too far. You just can't do that to another human being. So what do we see here in God's message? We see that God is asserting himself as judge. Judge over all of humanity, not just his people, and judge over all sin, not just the breaking of the law within Israel. And so on the one hand, I think this is intended to remind us to take comfort in God's authority. We live in an incredibly unpredictable world. And while God may not act in the way that I would like him to, this reminds me that the Bashar al-Assad's right, and the Kim Jong-un's of the world are not going unnoticed. The God is watching and will exercise his justice when he deems fit. All, as Paul says in Romans 14, will give account to God. Now, it's very popular today, more popular than perhaps you realize, even in theological circles, to move away from considering God as judge. We like God as loving, friendly ATM machine, but not so much when he judges all sin and holds every deed under the sun accountable. But consider for a moment what happens when you move away from a notion of God as judge of all human action. Well, if God is not judge, then there is no divine justice. If there is no divine justice, that means if you are to receive any justice in this world, you must acquire it for yourself. That means you must act as judge and jury and executioner, so to speak, in terms of exacting your justice, which is a very big responsibility. It means that anytime you want justice, not only will you have to go and get it, but even before that, you'll have to decide what's appropriate. And if you decide wrongly, and exact too much, then that person has the right to come back and exact their justice from you. 
Now, some of you might think, well, I'm a pretty good judge. I don't think I'll exact too much from someone. And have you not ever been so consumed with angry at, anger at someone over what they've done only to realize some part of their story that was unknown to you before and suddenly to say, oh, if I had known that part of their story, I would not have rushed to judgment or I would not have decided so fiercely against them. And suddenly we realize that we don't make good judges at all and the acquiring of justice simply sets us on a spiral in which I exact vengeance and then that person exacts vengeance back from me, but we both think the other has taken too much from the other. And so on and on it goes. And we can look at any corner of the world to see examples of this, this unending cycle of violence as a result of people exercising their own justice. And part of the problem, too, is that when we move away from God being judge, Another question arises, which is, well, how do you get to a place of forgiveness? Or how do you think about an idea of forgiveness if God is not judge? Again, there are a number of prominent theologians nationally right now that are saying, you know, God is judge is such an ancient idea. If we just put that on the shelf and focus on God as love, then we'll all embody that love toward one another and we'll forgive each other and the world will become a better place. Interestingly, you only find this theology in the West, which is something that Miroslav Volf, a fairly prominent theologian, has pointed out and who has written extensively on God's justice and how it works out in this world. But consider this an argument he puts forth in one of his books. My thesis will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Regarding this, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. That's a profound quote. What is Wolf saying? He's saying, if you think that society can get to a place of forgiveness simply by focusing upon God's love, then you live in a place that hasn't suffered any real tyranny or any real oppression. He's saying that that's an idea that's only born out of suburbia in the West. Because if you actually live in a war-torn place, if you actually suffer as a refugee, if your family has been slaughtered, if you live alone in some far-off place because you've been exiled from your land, he says the only way that you can talk about forgiveness is if you can entrust to someone bigger and more powerful and more righteous than yourself, judgment. Because if God isn't going to hold those people accountable for their atrocities, then you have to. That's why it's essential that we recognize that God is judge. Not only judge, but that he is just judge on our behalf. Now that this be too, that's a big quote with lots of big ideas. 
And I don't want to lose any of our younger people either. And so, boys and girls, I think in some ways you know this deep down better than your mommies and daddies because we like to grow up and fool ourselves that we're very competent to play judge and execute our own vengeance. But imagine, just for the sake of an experiment, that you're going to go home today and mommy or daddy is taking a break. There will be no judgment and no justice delivered in your house for 48 hours. You get to do whatever you want. Sky's the limit. So some of you are smiling. Some of you have a notion as to what you'd like to do as you go home and enjoy that freedom. But as you enjoy that freedom, and particularly imagine you're in a home with other siblings and your other siblings are enjoying that freedom, you're going to clash. And eventually, the older, stronger sibling will take advantage of the younger sibling, push him or shove him in. You run to mom or dad and say, I'm the weaker party here. I'm being taken advantage. I need judgment on my behalf. Hold him accountable or her accountable. But mom and dad says, sorry, it's 48 hours off. No, I'm not in business. Good luck. Well, suddenly, what are you going to do? You have to take justice in your own hands. You can't let this slide. And if you do let it slide, you're just going to be taken advantage of even more. So being smaller and weaker, you need a tool. You need a hammer. And you grab the hammer and you head for the toys of your older sibling. And you start smashing them. But he or she thinks that you've overreacted and exacted too much vengeance. So now he's really going to hurt you more so than he did before. In which case you are ready to uh, take food coloring to all of his or her favorite clothes if they're an adolescent and care about their clothes. And it escalates and escalates until someone is naked and screaming and running down the road to the neighbors for help as a result of what has transpired. You laugh. I, I had a friend, a good friend growing up. His household was chaos. And one, four siblings, and one time they were left with a babysitter and way too much, way out of the league for this babysitter. I mean, four crazy kids. And it resulted in the youngest sibling running up the street bleeding and naked. And the babysitter running after him, trying to chase him down. Uh, So, boys and girls, all of us realize that little picture of what happens in a household, which we all recognize, is really just a microcosm of what happens in the world every day. Right? The cycle of violence, if if there is not a judge to execute justice on behalf of humanity. So, we have, have a notion of what has been said. God has asserted, I am judge. I am judge not just of Israel, but of all nations. And I hold not just certain things accountable, but I will hold all things accountable. And I take particular issue when humans act barbarically toward another human being. If you violate right, this notion of human rights, this, these, this creature that has been made in my image, then I take particular Uh, umbrance of that and will hold you accountable. So this is what is being said. Why is it being said? Remember, Amos is trying to get to Israel. So why does Amos begin with these foreign nations? First of all, it is certainly a reminder that God judges all peoples. Now, we've hinted at this already, but you may think that that's a puzzling notion because these nations excuse me, have not received God's law. They've not had a prophet. There hasn't been any revelation. So how are they being held accountable? What is the standard? 
The scripture holds that all humans being created in the image of God are uh, imbued with conscience, with a basic morality in which they know the difference between a basic right and wrong. That doesn't mean that they will move towards God in worship, but it means, you know, it's one of the reasons that something like incest is wrong in every culture of the world. And you see this hinted at in verse 9. I didn't print it for you, but if you have your Bibles, God's taking issue with Tyre, which is the capital of Phoenicia, and he holds them accountable because they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Well, those of you who know your Bibles, you may be thinking, what covenant? I remember the covenant of David and the covenant of Moses and the covenant of Noah. What is the covenant of brotherhood? There is no covenant in that sense of brotherhood. It's a phrase that's communicating. God is saying, because of your violence, you have violated what is considered basic human decency. Because you have treated other human beings as property, as animals to be bought and sold, you have violated what is, should be basic and obvious to all human beings. And so God is saying that he judges all, not those, simply those who have their law. And this is what Paul reminds us in Romans 2. The Gentiles, when they don't have the law, do the things of the law, are a law unto themselves. Paul writes, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So you may read and think, how does God judge the nations? That's not fair. Well, it is fair if every human being who's created in his image has the basic notion of what is right and what is wrong. That's the first reason why Amos is starting with the nations. What is the second reason that Amos begins with the nations outside Israel? In the second place, Amos is demonstrating what it means to go down a road in which you give up any sense of divine justice, you fall into a place where you have to demand justice on your own terms, and as a result, inevitably, you will become less human. You're giving up human dignity. You're giving up the covenant of the brotherhood because you must consume and devour to be paid back for what you have suffered. The tribes that are spoken of, these nations, are jealous of one another. They want what the others have. They're afraid of one another and so enlarge their borders, and as they continue to execute their own justice, their violence spirals out of control. Have you found yourself in a situation or a relationship in which you were intent to execute your own justice? The further you move away from God as judge, the more of your humanity you will give up because you have to be willing more and more you have to be more and more willing to sacrifice more and more to exact what you think you are owed to the point of those in our passage who are willing to rip open the bellies of pregnant women because they think that they are entitled to do so. Have you been in a place where that much anger and hatred has been in your heart? You may think that's scandalous and ancient and is far from me. Is it really so far from you? Is it far from you because of your righteousness or simply because you live in the suburbs? These things that are being described, I think, are very not that far from our hearts, except for the fact that we've not suffered in the way that these people or people around the world have suffered. And as you find your place in that place of suffering, are you willing to give up your humanity because you must have your own justice? 
this will result in you becoming less and less human, which is the picture of the nations that we have in these six refrains. That's number two. I think there's a third reason that Amos addresses the nations first before Israel, and that is because God wants to demonstrate his love. Can you imagine being Israel? You can a little bit because you kind of are Israel. You're God's people called out to be different. But for a moment, put yourself in the Old Testament and you've got a massive law and lots of dietary restrictions. You have to observe various instructions and nobody else around you has to. And sometimes it seems like all the nations around you are thriving and doing much better than you are. And often you're getting the snot beat out of you. And you think, where is Yahweh? Where is our God who we seek to serve? That's why you see frequently in the Old Testament, the people of God saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you for us in a more distinctive way? And this is God's reminder saying, yes, I've, I've not been blind. I've seen the sin of Eden and Ammon, and I've seen the sin of Moab, Phoenicia and Philistia, and I will hold it to account in the way that I deem fit, but know that I still love you even in the midst of it. And it's a reminder to us, if you are in a place where you think, where are you, God? Why haven't you shown up? If you have suffered violence or abuse or neglect, and you, you sit in that place saying, God, are you really loving? God, even in this affirmation, says, yes, nothing escapes my observation. And all men and all women for all deeds will give account at the judgment day. So, let's summarize for just a minute. We've said that God is judge of all humans and of all actions. We confess that God judges out of love, that he holds accountable all evil and sin so that we might be created new. But we've also said that without God as judge, we will execute our own justice and our own vengeance. And that will ultimately make us less human. So what is the point? I'm being reminded that God is judge and executes his own justice. Where are you not allowing him to do so? Where have you been hurt or wounded in such a fashion that yes, with lip service, you say God is judge, but in your heart, you would love to be locked into a room with that person. I've been hurt various times in my life. I can think of times where a friend, really I thought did me wrong. We're in a situation and it got kind of sticky and it was kind of like we were in a plane going down and there was one parachute and I said, well, I'll look up front in the plane for another parachute. You look in the back. And I walked up to the front and then turned around and he had jumped with the one parachute. And that hurt me deeply. And for a long time, you bet I would have loved to be in a private place with him with nobody around. Right? Because in my mind and my heart, I celebrate the idea of exacting my own vengeance of causing that person pain for the pain that they have rendered unto me. Another person, a friend that I thought just didn't do me right, and so I just cut him off. I won't talk to you. You don't deserve my friendship. I will punish you in a war of attrition. Same deal, I'm taking my own vengeance. I'm exacting my own justice in this situation. And in this, I move away from God, and I become less human. It's the difference between, you know, I'm not saying that you need to be chummy with your enemies. I'm not even saying you need to like your enemies. 
Nor am I saying that there's not accountability and important repercussions for evil and sin and bad things in this world. Really, the intent here is to consider your heart. You confess that God is judged, but if that's true, you will make a decision whether really to bank on that claim. If you choose not to, then you'll be in a place where you think, if there was no law and no accountability and I had a knife, I would gouge this person's eyes out. And as you sit in that place and think and dwell on your anger and hatred, it will consume you and you will become less human and you will move away from God because you'll be increasingly angry that he has not executed the justice that you want. Or you stand in a place and say, I'm angry and I'm hurt and I think you've done me wrong, but you, like all humanity, will fall into the hands of the living God. And that is a more terrible thing than I could wish upon you or anyone else. And I leave it, leave it to him to exact the justice that he will because he'll do it right. And he knows the whole story. And as a result, I'm free. To stand in this place is freedom. To stand in this place is slavery. To stand in this place is hope. To stand in this place is cynicism that leads to despair. And so the invitation to you is when, when and where and if you have this person, you have this hurt and you have this hatred, it is to ask what would it be to entrust this to God and to be free from the anger and hatred. In closing, there is one more reason that Amos starts with the nations. And the reason is this. It's a setup. Amos begins with the six nations and identifies their sins and expresses God's judgment against them. And as you're, if you're an Israelite or you're a, a citizen of Judah, you're listening and you're saying, yes, Amos, you are my man. Keep going. You are singing my song. The next two nations in the oracle against the nations are Judah and Israel. And they would have stopped short to realize that Amos has set them, set them up that even as they would have cheered the very words that he said, he is about to lump them with those outside the covenant as a result of their sin. Which is a warning to us all and is a preview uh, for next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one true and good judge that you exercise justice in the right and appropriate way in all things, and that your mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you please forgive us for exacting our own vengeance? Would you please forgive us for being so eager to take a pound of flesh from those around us as if it would actually heal our heart? Instead, would you help us to surrender these things to you, for you are the just and the perfect judge? You're a judge that when we say that mercy triumphs over judgment, it really means that judgment will have to fall upon you. It's at this table that we recognize that fact and we celebrate the freedom that we do have and the healing of our hearts because you have allowed the judgment of the world to fall on your son. We give you thanks for this as we come to your table. In Christ's name we pray, amen.